Well, good afternoon, brethren. It's a privilege to be here with you this afternoon. Appreciate that special music. As you heard in the announcements, had a very positive visit down in the Atlanta area last weekend. Was able to give the sermon in Brazelton, had about 35 to 40 people there. Then down in Atlanta, we had almost 100 people. And then we had about 46 people came to the Tomorrow's World presentation on Sunday afternoon in Brazelton, including several ministers from uh, several other churches. Uh, I went out in front of the uh, meeting hall before things started. I was going to take a couple of pictures, and people just started coming by, and I happened to be standing there, so I said, well, hello, my name is Doug Winnell. I'll be doing the presentation. This is well, my name is so-and-so. And two of the fellows said, well, my name is Joe Smith, minister. Another was Joe Blow, minister. So it was interesting to uh, realize who was going to be in the audience. Uh, but it was a very exciting weekend, very encouraging weekend. But uh, it was a rainy Sunday. We would call it a very miserable day. It wasn't real uh, heavy rain. But it was kind of misty and rainy, but we would call it miserable. But, you know, after the years I spent over in England and Ireland and Scotland, they would call it a soft afternoon. (laughs) A soft afternoon, just a mist coming down. It's amazing what the twist of the tongue will do to make a miserable day into a soft afternoon. I want to share just a few more thoughts with you along this line. God has created human beings as very unique creatures, very unique creatures. He's given us the unique capacity to communicate with language, to communicate with language. Animals make sounds, dogs bark, and lions roar, and birds tweet. Some human beings are trying to tweet today. (laughs) I don't know whether they're evolving into a higher level or regressing. But human beings communicate with language. We communicate with words. And that's one of the things that makes life interesting. Because what is said is not always what is heard. What is said is not always what is heard. I remember when I went to Mississippi to go to graduate school 40-some years ago. I was a Yankee from up north, but I was in rebel country in Mississippi. And I was mentioning one day when I first got there, I need to get downtown and get something from the, the, the post office. And this one young fellow I was in class with, he says, well, I'll carry you all downtown. And I looked at him and I thought, he's going to put me on his back and carry me downtown. And he saw my quizzical look. He said, no, I'll give you a ride. And I breathed a sigh of relief <laughs> that I wasn't going to have to ride on his back downtown. Uh, Let's see. Another time, I think, whenever my son and daughter-in-law were visiting over in Ireland, we got to church, and this one uh, family came in. They were kind of late, and this one guy was kind of huffing and puffing. He said, sorry, I'm late. He said, my car sat down on me. (laughs) And my daughter-in-law bit her tongue because she was starting to to, to laugh. And uh, I said, your car sat down on you? Yeah, it broke down. Oh, okay. (laughs) But what was said was not what was heard. Um, I saw something on the Internet the other day where a policeman pulled a guy over in Tennessee. He said, y'all got an ID? And the guy in the car says, ID about what? (laughs) 
<laughs> Another guy was driving across the border up into Canada, and the policeman there at the border, he said, uh, do you have any guns or knives or explosives in your car? The guy looked at him and said, what do you need? <laughs> You know, like I said, what is said is not always what is heard. Sometimes we hear things very differently. Sometimes we miss what's being said. You know, as I get older, I don't hear quite as well. and I have to say, what did you say? But why am I talking about these things? Well, I wanted to make a point. Several weeks ago, Mr. Ames gave a sermon entitled, Our Incredible Mission. Our Incredible Mission. He was reviewing seven points that Dr. Meredith had mentioned in a Living Church Church News article written in 2009, in which he listed seven points, seven aspects of our incredible mission. But my question to you is, what did you hear? What did you hear? What did you write in your notebooks as you listened to that sermon? You just put down seven numbers? Did you realize, and I had to think about this later, did you realize the powerful intent of those seven points? The powerful intent of those seven points. The global scope of those seven points. The unique significance of those seven points. And the current relevance of those seven points. You might be saying, what do you mean? What are you talking about? I would encourage you to maybe look at some of the mission statements of some of the other churches. I was going through some files this past week and happened to come across one that I had saved. And some of the points in their mission statement was to get along with each other, to manage church finances effectively, to promote a Bible reading program, And the last point was to preach the gospel. I want you to think about those things for just a little bit, because I wanted to review very quickly uh, the points that Dr. Meredith had mentioned and Mr. Ames had mentioned, just to see the contrast so that we don't take for granted something, some very powerful things that God has given to his church today. Point number one that was mentioned was to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God and the true name of Jesus Christ. Now, why are we doing that? We've got to go back to uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus came into the Galilee or into uh, Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. It wasn't just preaching the gospel that Jesus loves you, but he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 16, verse 15, he told his disciples, You go into all the world and preach the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of God, to all the world. The old King James says to every creature. You may have seen some of these pictures, artist pictures of St. Francis of Assisi out preaching to the, the birds and the bees and the, uh, the deer and the, the squirrels. Well, that was his interpretation, if that's true of preaching the gospel to every creature. You know, the birds and the bees and the deer don't understand the gospel. You know, the correct translation there would be to all mankind, to everyone. 
every human being all around the world. That's why we're doing what we're doing. You know, these mission statements come out of the scriptures directly. We didn't sit around and think these things up. They were taken directly out of the scriptures. Point number two, to powerfully preach the end time prophecies. Dr. Meredith went through a sermon last week talking about the end time prophecies in Ezekiel and what they have to say to us today. You know, you could go to Jeremiah chapter 30 talking about the uh, uh, Jacob's trouble. The time of Jacob's trouble is coming. And it says in the very last verse of that chapter, you will understand these things in the latter days. The time is coming at the end of the age when you will understand these prophecies and they'll begin to make sense. And we've been given a mission to proclaim these things to the world today, not just to get along with each other. Now, that's important, too. We have to learn to do that and not just to manage our funds. OK, but we've got a, a, a mission that is literally going to change the world and rock the world. If we do our job, point number three, to feed the flock. Why are we doing that? Why is that part of our mission? Remember, Jesus told uh, Peter in John chapter 21, feed my flock, feed my lambs. This is your job. This is what you have to do. You're going to be held accountable for that. That's why we're doing these things. Why do we want to be fed to grow? First John chapter three, first couple of verses. We have the potential of becoming part of God's family if we develop the mind of Jesus Christ. These are powerful things, brethren. Number four, to be an example to the church and to the world. Again, why is this part of our mission? What did Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew chapter five? Be lights to the world. How are we to be lights to the world? You know, if we begin living by every word of God, keeping the commandments of God, we're going to stand out in this world because many people don't do that. Many people have been told the law has been done away with. You don't have to keep those commandments. But if you start doing those things, people will notice that you're different. And we can be a light that way. That's part of our mission. Point number five is to learn and practice servant leadership. Jesus told his disciples this in Matthew chapter 20. To be a servant and to be a leader is very different than standing up and just telling everybody what to do and bossing them around. Or to strive to get the chief seats at the feast and have some cushy job. I remember one year at the feast, one of the evangelists that was assigned to the feast site wasn't traveling, so he stayed there at the feast site. And he took out a couple of ministers and their wives, different ones, every evening. And we were talking, just getting acquainted. And he said, you know, I really admire the fact that you've spent time getting an education. He said, you've got a skill. He said, all I know how to do is travel around the world and spend money. And I thought, why would you say that? <laughs> you know, people wonder why God allowed the worldwide church of God to come apart. When you hear comments like that, you begin to understand that God is sifting and sorting And he's removing some fruit that didn't bear. We're not playing games. God is very serious about these things. 
to become servant leaders. We've been called to rule with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. We can't be bossing people around. We can't be looking for cushy jobs. We've got a job to do, a mission to perform. Point number six, to restore original Christianity, the theme of Dr. Meredith's broadcast tomorrow. Why is that part of our mission? What does it say in Revelation 12, 9? It says Satan has deceived the whole world. And part of our job is dispel, get rid of, cut through the deception and explain the truth. One of the phrases that I hear a number of times when these Tomorrow's World presentations after we're done, somebody will come up and say, that makes sense. That makes sense. It puts it all together. That's what we're here to do, is to paint a big picture that makes sense. I talked to a number of people last week, said they grew up in various churches, and they said they were always looking for answers, but the answers were never there. They didn't hear answers that make that made sense. So part of our job is to restore original Christianity and proclaim that truth to the world. And finally, the seventh point was to build an atmosphere of faith. Why is that important? Why is that important? In Second Peter chapter two and verse two, it talks about at the end of the age, scoffers will come. Scoffers will come and they will plant doubts and they will undermine and destroy the faith of many people. And part of our job is to show there is a real God. This book that you hold in your hands is the inspired word of God. And it's been preserved for us. And these are very powerful aspects of our message that God has given us to deliver at this time. You know, he didn't call us to just um, manage our finances and just get along with each other and just have social events and things like that. Notice the impact on the early church of the activities of the apostles whenever they set out to fulfill the mission that Jesus Christ gave them. Go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. This was what the apostles did. This was the impact that they had when they followed the instructions that Jesus gave them. It says, but when they did not find them, this was after a ruckus there in Thessalonica. Uh, They were looking for the apostles, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason where the apostles had stayed and some of the brothers to the rulers of the city, crying, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Those who have turned the world upside down have come into our city too. And brethren, this is part of the mission that God has given us today, to turn the world right side up, to proclaim the truth to people who have been misled and deceived. You and I have been called to share that incredible mission that Dr. Meredith was writing about and that Mr. Ames discussed last week. But the point I want to make here as we begin is that Jesus did not call his disciples and then spend three and a half years training them and then say, okay, here's your mission. See you later. I'm going to heaven. I've heard that there's 72 virgins up there. (laughs) He wasn't into that stuff. 
And he didn't just turn the apostles loose and say, okay, you're on your own. He gave them tools to use so that they could fulfill the mission. He gave them tools to use, very special tools to use, so that they could fulfill their mission and finish their job. In the sermon today, I want to discuss 12 special tools. You might think, oh, 12. (laughs) It's going to be a long sermon. Hopefully not. But I want to talk about 12 special tools that God has given to his church to enable that church to accomplish the mission that he gave to that church. And I want to ask as we go through the sermon, are you aware of what those tools are? Do you value how much these tools can be used? Do you understand how they can be used? And are we using these tools as individuals and as a church? And how can we use them more effectively? So that's where I want to go with the sermon. If you turn to Matthew chapter 28, we'll notice the first of these tools. And they're very special tools to the church of God, as we will see. Matthew 28, the mission of the church is described in Matthew. Jesus is speaking in verse 19. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, of all nations, the whole way around the world, not just sitting in your living room, having a little group and talking about Jesus, but to go to the world with a very powerful message, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. You don't make up a new story. You don't modify things. You don't adjust things. uh, You don't innovate. You teach what I have commanded you to teach. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He didn't say, I'm going back to heaven. See you in a couple thousand years. Hope you do well. Bye. He said, no, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. I'm going to be with you. That's a statement. That's a promise. In Mark, towards the end of the book, actually the last verse, Mark 16, 20. Now, in verse 15, it says, Jesus said again, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, to every one, to all human beings. Down in verse 20, it says, They went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. In other words, Jesus Christ was there working with the church, working with his disciples. You can go through the book of Acts. I'm not going to take time to do that today. But just go through the book of Acts and notice how Jesus worked with the church. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples were told to wait in Jerusalem until Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost? It was an outpouring of God's Spirit. The wind came rushing through. These doors would suddenly burst open. And people over here in the front row were hanging onto their seats. Because all of a sudden, something's happening in here. And we look around the room, and there's flames of fire on everybody's head. Some would burn their hair, and some would not. (laughs) But something dramatic happened there on that day. Would it have occurred if one group was meeting in North Jerusalem that didn't speak to a group in South Jerusalem? Another group in East Jerusalem was telling everybody, you're all Laodiceans? They were together. 
They were together. They were of one mind, and God poured out his spirit on them, and they spoke in different languages. God was making it very plain and clear. These are my people. This is of me that's happening. Then you have other accounts where Peter and James and John and others did miracles, and people saw those miracles. Peter was thrown in jail. What happened? The angel came along, let him out. <laughs> jailer, the people panicked. <laughs> Where'd he go? So he was sprung from jail. He got to get out a card free or get out a jail free card from <laughs> Monopoly. Now, these were things that happened to the early church, very powerful things. The Apostle Paul was heading off to persecute the church. And God appeared to him. He saw this, this bright light, he heard a voice. He was blinded for three days. When he finally got his sight back, he was a different person. His life was changed just that fast. In a matter of hours, he realized he'd been fighting God, and he thought he was doing God's will. When you go through the book of Acts, these incredible things happened. You know, with Cornelius, where God was expanding the church, he was growing the church. Cornelius had a vision. He's supposed to go seek uh, Peter, Acts chapter 10. Then Peter has a vision. Somebody's going to come see you. And then he began to put these things together. And then these Gentiles began speaking in tongues. And Peter realized, wow, they're supposed to be part of the church too. God was growing a church. He was pointing the direction that they needed to go. These are some of the things we read in the book of Acts. You know, Paul was apparently praying And they had a vision of somebody over in uh, Europe saying, come see us. Come see us. So God was showing where the church needed to go. And the apostles were responsive to those directions. They were responsive. Jesus said, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. I'm going to be with you till the end of the age. I'm going to work with you. Paul mentions in Hebrews 13:5, he says that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I just encourage you to look up where those, those words came from. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 31. God was speaking to Moses. He says, tell the children of Israel, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Then in verse 8, he addresses Joshua. And God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, he says to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We are the church of God. God is not going to leave or forsake his church. So how can we use this tool? Turn to James. Turn to James. I want to talk about his second tool. The first tool is that God says, I'm not going to leave you. And if we do our part, God is not going to leave us. He'll be able to use us and use us powerfully. But in James chapter 4 and verse 8, notice one of the key, another key, another tool that we can use. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 
The second key is to draw close to God. To draw close to God so that he can draw close to us. Draw close to God so that he can draw close to us. How do we do that? We take time every day to pray. You know, David mentioned several times in the Psalms that he prayed morning, noon, and evening. Daniel mentions that he prayed morning, noon, and evening. We've got to take time to do those things, to talk with God, to share our concerns with him, to plead with him, to intervene, to guide, to heal. But praying is talking to God, taking time to study, taking time to study on a regular basis. Second Timothy 2.15 talks about diligently study so that we can expound and explain the scriptures and live by them. These are things we've got to do. You know, if you're spending a couple of hours a day watching TV, you might ask yourself, what am I learning? How am I going to use this? As opposed to spending that time in prayer and Bible study. You know, I was coming into the church. I was in graduate school. I spent all day studying and working around a, a medical center. But, you know, after I came into the church, I couldn't wait to go home at night and spend two or three hours in Bible study because I realized that's going to be more important. That's going to be more important. And I had a system of things I was going through because I wanted to learn. I was hungry. I wanted to understand. But by taking time to study, we're going to be drawing closer to God. We're going to let his words run through our minds as opposed to other things that are really kind of nonsensical. Taking time to meditate. Meditating on the Word of God. What did I learn? You know, I spent a lot of time, quite a fair amount of time, meditating on the sermon that Mr. Ames gave a couple of weeks ago. Because I wanted to build on it. But I had to realize, you know, I sat there and wrote down these points. Well, I know that one, and I know that one, and I know that one, and I know that one. But whenever I ran across this piece of paper in my file last week and I saw the uh, mission statement from another organization, I realized, wow, that is really different. That is really different from the mission statement that we have. The mission statement that we have is going to rock this world. The other one would, would be nice. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's not going to shake the world. It's not going to prepare the way for Jesus Christ to return to this earth. It's very different. Meditating on the word of God, David says in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Now, David was not a monk that found a desert island that he could go sit on and nobody would bother him. You go to Ireland, you go to Scotland, some of these places, that's what they did back in the Middle Ages. They found the most desolate place, and they'd go there, and nobody bothered them, and they didn't bother anybody else, but they were communing with God. But they were they were dropping out of society. They weren't involved. Jesus didn't do that, go sit on a rock someplace. No, he was walking the, 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 the roads of Palestine, preaching and teaching, being persecuted, explaining Challenging, is very much involved in the world, not running away from it. Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20, it talks about 
kings, instructions to kings. It says you make a copy of the law for yourself. And then you study it every day of your life. You might want to do that for yourself. Write out a few things. I don't think you have to write out the whole book of Exodus and the whole book of Deuteronomy. Take you a long time. But you might want to write out the Ten Commandments and some of the statutes and judgments there in Exodus 22, 23. And think about those things. Look at the problems we have in the world today and ask yourself what principles from the Bible could be applied to solve these problems. This whole thing about homosexual marriage today and all that stuff. The Bible says it's an abomination. It should be stopped. God is not happy with these things. And we had a little article in the Prophecy Comes Alive a couple of months ago on the new normal. I'm talking about homosexuality. I got three or four or five letters from people saying, I'm a good Christian. Why are you saying these things about me and my lifestyle? Well, I'm sure he was sincere. But he's misguided, misdirected, deceived. And he doesn't understand that. And somebody's going to have to explain to him at some point in time and all his friends that this is totally wrong. It's totally misguided. It's perverted. It's not God's way at all. The people have got to be educated. They've got to be shown. But we need to meditate on the word of God. How does this apply today? How can I apply this in my life? It takes time to do that. One of Satan's devices today is to keep us so busy and so focused on whatever it is that we're doing, we don't have time. We don't have time. We don't take time to meditate on the Word of God, to meditate on God's creation. I think I've used this example before, but years ago, whenever my wife and I were at Ambassador College in Pasadena, we were asked to chaperone a group of guys and girls up at Lake Arrowhead, I think it was. We had a big lodge up there. It had two wings. It had the girls on one side, the guys on another. And uh, Friday evening, we got up there, had dinner, and somebody came and said, could we put some nice Sabbath music on after dinner? I said, well, fine. So they put on something that was very soft, and I thought, I'm just going to leave this alone and see what happens. So the Sabbath music, soft music, somebody else put something else on. It wasn't quite as soft. It wasn't quite as sabbatical. And by the time they were done, they had kind of rock-type music playing. I thought, I'm going to leave it go. I'll talk with them tomorrow. The next morning, they put on some more music, and it was not Sabbath music. So during the Bible study I had had with them Saturday afternoon, I said, you know, you guys missed an incredible opportunity. You came up here to a very beautiful spot. You could have watched the moon go down over the lake last night, listen to the breeze and the trees and tree frogs and everything else, something totally different from Pasadena. But you brought your music along, boom, 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 that type of thing. I said, you missed an incredible opportunity to look at God's creation, to be thankful for where you are, the peace, the tranquility. Nobody went near the record player after the Bible study. (laughs) Didn't touch it. (laughs) Now, we had a little dance that evening, and we had some music, but they missed out on an incredible opportunity. We've got to take time to do these things, to realize that God is a creator. He didn't put Adam and Eve in a high-rise apartment in downtown Chicago. He put them in a garden. 
where there were probably waterfalls and animals and just a beautiful, tranquil place. Human beings have created some very different things, influenced by Satan. But if we take time to draw near to God, to pray, to study, to meditate, to fast, to show God you're intense, you're sincere. You can read Daniel 9, Daniel 10, where Daniel prayed and fasted. He said, I want to know, I want to understand the future. And God gave him then visions. Daniel 11, longest prophecy in the Bible came after Daniel had fasted and prayed and asked God, show me. He was very sincere, very intent, and God gave him information, incredible amounts of information. So praying, studying, fasting, meditating, and obeying God. This is how we draw close to God. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Just give your heart to me and everything will be fine. No, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's how we show God we love him. God watches what you do even whenever you don't think anybody's watching. Now, he's not a big policeman up there, but his act, he can see by your actions where your heart is. And those are the people he's going to reward and enable to be part of his family. So one of the tools is drawing closer to God. And these are things we can do. Another tool in John 14, verses 15 and 16. Let's go there. John 14, verses 15 and 16. Again, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But if we do that, he said he's going to do something for us. John 14, verses 15 and 16. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper. In other words, he will give you God's Spirit that will abide with you forever. And it's called a spirit of truth. A spirit of truth. Not some big emotional thing that takes you over and you start talking and jabbering and falling on the floor and things like that. He said it's a spirit of truth. And notice what that spirit will do. In John 14, John 16, verse 13. John 16, verse 13. He says, however, when the spirit of truth has come, he or it would be a better translation, will guide you into all truth. God's spirit will guide you into all truth. So let's talk about these things for just a little bit. Number three, God says, I'm going to give you my spirit if you obey me, if you keep my commandments. In order to receive that spirit, we've got to repent, Acts 2.38. And many people today talk about Jesus. They talk about giving your heart to the Lord. But then they don't tell people, you've got to repent. You've got to change. You can't continue being a homosexual. You can't continue taking drugs. You can't continue whatever it is that you're doing that breaks the laws of God. You've got to change. You've got to repent. And then you've got to be baptized. You've got to make a commitment. God, I accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I'm going to strive with all my being to obey you. Not to shade things one way or another, not to compromise, but to obey you. If you want to buy a car, you can go down to a showroom. You can sit in it. You can smell it, take it for a test drive, but you can't have it. until you sign on the dotted line and make a commitment to make the payments. 
and then they give you the keys. You stop making payments, they take the car back because you've broken the covenant, you've broken the agreement. In Acts 5.32, it says, God gives his spirit to those who obey him. When you stop, whenever you stop obeying God, you will lose God's spirit. We've had a lot of people left the church, stop keeping the Sabbath, stop keeping the holy days, and they begin to lose the understanding that they once had. Things get all cloudy. They get off in different directions. These things happen. These things happen. God gives his spirit to those who obey him. Second Corinthians 4.16, just a couple of comments here. We've got to nourish God's spirit daily. You know, if you conceive a child, if you're a woman, and a child begins to grow in your body, the last thing you want to do is go on a 40-day fast, about the seventh or eighth month of your pregnancy. You probably lose the baby because the baby will continue to draw nutrients from your body and there'll be consequences. And once God gives us his spirit, we've got a responsibility to nourish that spirit, to feed that spirit, to use that spirit, to follow where that spirit leads. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, it says, don't quench the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. You know, if this carpet would start burning down here, I've got a glass of water up here, and I can throw the water on the carpet and it'll put the fire out. It'll quench the spirit. If we don't pray, we don't study, we don't follow where God's spirit leads, we will quench that spirit. God will put thoughts in our mind, but if we don't act on those thoughts, he won't bother See, we've got a responsibility, a big responsibility. You know, Paul could have said when he got this vision of a man calling from Macedonia, come over here. Paul could have said, I'm busy. <laughs> That's too far. I have a nice little group right here in, in, in Ephesus or wherever he was. I, I, I don't have time to do that. One of these days, I, I'm, we might be able to send somebody over there. He didn't say that. When God told Abraham, I want you to leave, take your son, offer him as a sacrifice, he says, oh, no, God, you can't do that to me. And throw a fit. He didn't say that. He went. He was following where God's spirit was leading. You know, brethren, if we abandon any of these points that are scriptural, how can God use us? I remember listening to somebody else that started his own group. He said, well, we let those people over there, talking about us, the Living Church of God, let them preach the gospel. We don't have uh, enough money to do that. So we'll let them preach the gospel. We'll just have our little church here. You can't pick and choose out of a mission statement. We've got things we've got to do. Having God's spirit, is that important? Really? You might want to read Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. It says, if you don't have God's spirit, you're none of his. You're not a Christian. Again, if you're not keeping the commandments of God, he'll withdraw that spirit. And we can tell ourselves we're Christians. But Paul says very plainly, if you don't have God's spirit, you're none of his. We've got to be led by God's spirit as a church and as individuals. 
to go through the doors that God opens. See, these are powerful things, brethren, powerful tools. If we do what God asks us, then he can bless us and use us. If we draw back and don't use these tools, follow where God's spirit leads, we're not going to be effective. So that was number three. Number four, why is it important to be led by God's spirit? As we read in John 16, 13, it says he will lead us and guide us into all truth. How is Mr. Armstrong able to come up with 18 truths? You just stay up at night and think up these things and make a list? No, he was looking for truth. He was looking for answers, and he found those answers, many of which came from the church of God. And he was able to pull them together and synthesize those things. You know, in Matthew 17, 11, it talks about that someone would come in the spirit and power of Elijah and restore all things, recapture true values. You might want to make a list of those 18 truths. I don't have them all with me here this afternoon, but a knowledge of the Sabbath. It wasn't done away with. Jesus kept it. Paul kept it. The early church kept it until it began to be changed. Late first century, second century, third century. The holy days, they weren't done away with. Jesus kept them. The early church kept them. And there were people that apparently kept some of these things down through history. But restoring a knowledge of these things, the biblical health laws, they're not Jewish. <laughs> they're God's health laws. They're going to be the foundation of health policy in the coming kingdom of God. As we learn to use those, then we're going to be able to teach others those things. A knowledge of tithing, especially second and third tithe. You can't keep the feast unless you're keeping a second tithe. And third tithe is for those that have needs. A right understanding of government. Some people think that government's not important. Well, what is Christ going to set up when he comes back to this earth? <laughs> a government in Jerusalem. And the laws will go forth from there. And it's going to bring peace and justice to this earth. Very powerful principle. God has led his church to understand these things. He didn't lead Billy Graham and some of these other people to come to understand these things. He led his church to come to understand these things. Number five, another powerful principle, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 6. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 6. Here Jesus told his disciples to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Unless they knew where these lost sheep were, they couldn't go. But when you look at where the 12 apostles went and others went, they went to where these Israelite nations had gone. So a key to understanding the identity of Israel and the Israelite nations, and for that matter, other nations, is a very powerful tool for doing our job and fulfilling our mission. But, you know, this was one of the first things that the guys that took over the Worldwide Church of God got rid of, made fun of. And yet Mr. Armstrong said over and over, he said, this is a key to understanding Bible prophecy. And yet the message that some of these young men were preaching and others picked up was, well, we don't want to talk about this bad news about prophecy. We just want to talk about the good news that Jesus loves you. But God gave an understanding 
of the identity of the Israelite nations to his church for a number of very important reasons. You know, Mr. Armstrong didn't create this information. It had been preserved. It was there for him to find. And God enabled him to grasp the importance of that. I remember talking to a younger minister who had been one of my students one time in Pasadena, right after a survey had come out from church headquarters. What do you think about this uh, stuff about the United States and Britain and prophecy? And I asked him, I said, what did you think about that survey? He said, you know, it was never important to me. It was never important to me. He was more interested in other things. He's not even a minister anymore. He's writing stuff on the Internet, uh, ridiculing what he used to believe, supposedly, and what he taught other people. Now, this is a very powerful tool. It makes sense out of history. It explains why we live in a country as blessed as we do. And you go to the Caribbean, you go across the border into Mexico, very different places. And people there know it. Why do they want to come here? Because of the blessings that are here. You know, talking with people that I visited with for hours in Africa, they know that they will never in this lifetime share the blessings that we have here. But they have an understanding of the coming kingdom of God. And that is where they are focused. And they're looking forward to being there. God has given us a powerful principle here. A powerful principle to use. And hopefully we never take that for granted. And listen to somebody saying, oh, it's not important. It's not a matter of salvation. We know if Jesus said to his disciples, you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And you tell Jesus one of these days, well, we weren't sure where they were, so we didn't bother. I think it's going to be hard to answer that. Some people are going to have some big issues to deal with. But understanding the identity of the Israelite nations is a very powerful principle. Number six, another tool. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Peter's writing to the church. He said, God has given us a more sure word of prophecy. We have a better understanding of prophecy. It doesn't say we... <laughs> We understand everything about prophecy. It says we have a more sure word of prophecy. With the identity of Israel, we understand what is going to happen to the United States and to Britain and to France and to South Africa and Australia and New Zealand. We understand what is coming. We understand why it's coming. God said, you turn away from me. You reject my laws. There will be consequences like you have never seen before. And part of our job is to explain to nations that have been blessed incredibly what is coming, what they're going to have to deal with. I would imagine Dr. Meredith covered uh, uh, Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33 last weekend, talked about an Ezekiel warning. It says, you're to be a watchman to the house of Israel, not just Judah, but to the house of Israel. And if you see these things coming and you don't tell people and they die, their blood is going to be on your shoulders. But if you do tell people and you warn them and they change, then they will be saved and so will you. Does it matter what we say? 
Does it matter who we say these things to? You bet it does. And this is very different than just running church finances in a nice way and having socials and getting along with each other. We're talking about world-changing events, events that are going to have an impact on this world, and that you and I have been called to be part of that, to share in that, if we want to, if we catch the vision, if we're motivated. Somewhere on this earth, the servants of God are doing these things. What does Amos say? Amos 3, 7 that God will do nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Somewhere on this earth, God's servants are going to be revealing the secrets of God, explaining the purpose of life, explaining what's ahead for our nations. And if we do our job and fulfill our mission, there's going to be a reward. If we don't do our job... The reward is not going to be there. This is serious stuff. Number seven. I've really never thought about it this way until I was putting the sermon together. But notice in Galatians chapter three. And this has come to my mind as I've done these tomorrow's world presentations where we have a lot of people in the audience that are not, uh, you might say, physical descendants of of physical Israel. But in... uh, Galatians chapter 3. What Paul is saying is here is the church and the message is bigger than just the Israelite nations. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, 29. says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What Paul is saying is Gentiles, too, have an opportunity to be in the kingdom of God, to become heirs of these promises. And you jump over to chapter 6. Chapter 6 and verse 16. As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He's talking about a spiritual Israel and spiritual Israelites. It doesn't matter what your background is. If God has begun to call you and you repent and change, that you too can be part of the kingdom of God, part of the spiritual Israel. It's interesting watching an audience whenever I cover these things. I talk about prophecies against the the nations of Israel and who we are. And then I talk about a spiritual Israel, and I see some smiles. (laughs) Yeah, that's for us too. God's plan is big. It's inclusive, but you know, it's also exclusive. God is not calling everyone right now. He's calling a few people now. But out of every walk of life, to grow and to become ready to become kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God. It's a powerful message. It involves a lot more than just giving your heart to the Lord and talking about Jesus. It's about changing your life, beginning to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, to keep his commandments and to understand that's the best way to go. 
and to be deeply convicted about that so that you can share that truth with others. So point number seven is understanding the concept of a spiritual Israel. It's a big concept. It's an exciting concept. Number eight, another tool that God has given us to use in Isaiah 58, verse 1. talks about crying aloud and sparing not and showing my people their sins. You know, we understand what sin is. What is the definition of sin? 1 John 3, 4. Drinking, dancing, and playing cards, right? No. (laughs) It's transgressing the laws of God. You break the Sabbath, you break the holy days, you ignore the dietary laws, you don't do what God wants you to do. Yet for those of you that grew up in the South here, drinking and dancing and playing cards on Saturday night was just wrong, period. It doesn't say that in the Bible. David danced. Paul says, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. What? (laughs) He couldn't say things like that. Well, he did. But it also says in the Old Testament that the ministers weren't to drink before a sermon. (laughs) They need to be sober. They need to be serious. Not something you take lightly. Over the years, there have been ministers had problems with drinking, just as we've had members that have had problems with drinking. Can't do those things. These are things we need to repent of and change. But the Bible says we're to cry aloud and show God's people their sins. It is wrong to marry the same sex. It's wrong to commit adultery. It's wrong to do these things. Not just naughty, naughty. It's wrong. And our nation is going to be punished for these things. That's not a pleasant message. And we're probably going to get in trouble for some of the things that we're preaching because they're making it a criminal offense to say some of these things today. And yet if anybody reads the Bible, the Bible is very plain about these things. So we are to cry aloud and spare not and show our people their sins. That's what the prophets did because the priests weren't doing it. That's why God raised up Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel and others to proclaim a message that the religious establishment of those days didn't want to proclaim. It wasn't politically correct. So God had to raise up others to do the job. You know, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 have not changed. God's message there was, if you obey my commandments, you're going to be blessed individually, collectively, as a church and as a nation. If you disobey my commandments and reject my laws, then you're going to be punished. You're going to reap the consequences. These things are messages that need to be delivered. Number nine, a very exciting verse, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9. Another tool that God has given his church to use today that Jesus Christ did not have, Paul did not have, Peter did not have. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9. The prophecy about the Philadelphia era of the church of God. In verse 9 it says, I will make, let's see, actually it's verse 8. I know your works, I 
have set before you an open door that no one can shut. You have a little strength and and you've kept my word and not denied my name. Brethren, God has given his church today an incredible open door. When Mr. Armstrong started preaching in the 30s, about the same time that radio was beginning in this country, KDKA, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, one of the first radio stations to start. But it started in the 30s. The very same time Mr. Armstrong started preaching, he opened that door. And Mr. Armstrong was able to go through that with a message that was very powerful. I can remember laying in my bedroom in Jackson, Mississippi, listening to XCG, I think it was in Mexico or somewhere. But it came through loud and clear with a very powerful message. The printing press has been used. In the 1950s and the 1960s, television came into its own. I can remember when we first got our television set, we were living in Ohio. You know, it came on about 8 o'clock in the morning, and the station went off about 10 o'clock at night. And you got a test pattern that you could sit there and look at if you couldn't sleep. It was just there. Nothing happened. But in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, I mean, television became big. And people began hearing our message. In the 90s, computers and the Internet began to expand, and we're exploring and trying to utilize that as much as we can. Paul didn't have that. Jesus didn't have that, but we do. And our message can go around the world that way. There are places where we can't go physically. It's not going to be real popular if we try to go in and start preaching on the streets in Amman, Jordan, or in Syria, or in Iran. It would probably get nailed right on the street, burned, you know, get burned up or something like that. But with the Internet, we can go anywhere with these things. Now we've got iPads and iPhones and clouds and apps and all these other things that I don't even know about. But these things are things that we can use today. You know, Mr. Ames was mentioning in one of the comments at the very beginning about, you know, the trip I did last year around the world in 21 days. You know, we did left here, flew to San Francisco, got to New Zealand, did a Sabbath service at Tomorrow's World presentation, flew across to Australia, did four more presentations over there, hopped on a plane, went to South Africa, did a Bible study, another uh, service there, and then flew back home in 21 days. If Paul would have got on a sailing boat in Caesarea, it would probably taken him about 21 days to get up to Britain if he made it. And we can go the whole way around the world. The incredible doors that God has opened to his church to be able to utilize today. And yet some people are content just to stay home in their living room and talk about Jesus and be nice. We have been given a message literally to change the world, to turn the world right side up. We've got a job to do. That's that's point number nine, tool number nine, is this incredible open door that's there to use, and we've got to be able to use that and to go through the doors that God opens. Number ten, another tool. John 21, Jesus told Peter, feed my flock, feed my lambs. You know, we've been trying to do this ever since the church started. We've got sermons. We've got Bible studies. 
We've got magazines. We've got booklets, a Bible study course, television programs, spokesman's club, leadership clubs. And they're all free. They're all free to help God's people grow, to learn, so that we can become more effective instruments in God's hands. You know, back in the Middle Ages, if people had a Bible in some cases, they were killed. If you were in a Catholic country, had a Bible and tried to read it or preach from it, it burned you at a stake. You weren't supposed to have it. And yet all of you have Bibles. If you need a couple more, you go buy them. But there were times in history when you couldn't do those things. You literally couldn't. Yet there are churches today that don't use the Bible. I had a friend that was studying for the priesthood in the Catholic Church. He was there about a year or two. He said, you know, we all bought Bibles, but we never used it. We studied Thomas Aquinas. We studied Augustine. We studied philosophers. We never really looked into the Bible. Other people have been told in the Catholic Church, don't read the Bible, you'll get confused. Don't read it, you'll get confused. We'll explain it to you. How can they explain it if they don't understand it? See, God has given us a period of freedom, a period of peace, and given us incredible resources to use if we take the time to use them. Number 11. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul's instructions to Timothy. Start in verse 1. He says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, he wanted you to find, he wanted Timothy to find faithful individuals who could teach what they had been taught. God has given us the opportunity, as Mr. Ames mentioned, to start living university. It's been going about five years. You know, it started with uh, a lot of criticism, doubts on the part of a number of people. I think one individual who was not part of us said, you're not only sinning, but you're committing heresy to start one of these things. And then he started his own. But, you know, when you look back at history, Jesus spent three and a half years training his disciples. Three and a half years training his disciples. Samuel and Elijah started schools for the prophets, and they were called sons of the prophets. And they were training men to do what the priesthood wasn't doing in those days. About 1100 A.D., the Waldensians, some of them were probably part of the true church, retreated up into the rather inaccessible valleys in the Alps, foothills of the Alps. And they had little colleges up there where they were training individuals. You know, these weren't social occasions. They didn't have swimming pools. They didn't have tennis courts. 
They didn't have anything like that. They had a building on the side of the hill that was their college. And a big piece of rock was their table. And these men studied for about three and a half years there. Some cases they did not get married because of the dangers that were inherent in the job that they were going to do, taking the gospel out and preaching to people up into southern Germany, up into Switzerland. Some of these people apparently even got up into England. But they they knew the scriptures. They memorized much of the scriptures. And when they were dealing with Catholic priests, the Catholic priests couldn't deal with them because these guys knew the Bible. They were trained. They were prepared to do that. God has given us the opportunity to start living university. And it's been exciting. It's been a challenge. It's not been easy. But after five years, you know, we had 200 students first semester approximately. Another 200 students the second semester. Some people look at the fact that we only had four or five students on campus here and only four or five students on campus down in Australia. And it really doesn't seem like it's very much. But, you know, I think Living University has been like an iceberg. An iceberg is 10% above water and about 90% below the water line. Most people don't see the 190 students each semester that were enrolled in classes. They only see that the four or five that don't look like very much. But, you know, the Kevin Costner movie about Field of Dreams, the phrase was, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> Dr. Meredith made the decision to go ahead with Living University. And today we've got over 200 students a semester. People that are devoting their time. I was talking to some people down in Atlanta last weekend. One individual has a full-time job. He's taking a class in another university, and he's taking two living university classes because he wants to prepare. He wants to prepare to be used in God's time and in God's way. He's not into social things. He doesn't have time. He's got a family. But he's preparing himself to be used of God. If you turn back to Ezra, and we're just we're just about done, and I think we're going to make it. Uh, in Ezra chapter seven, Ezra was among the captives in Babylon. He was being sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild, you might say, a culture and a civilization there among the people that came out of captivity in Babylon. Ezra chapter 7 and uh, verse 10. Ezra knew what his job was, and he prepared for that. In verse 10 it says, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach the statutes and the ordinances in Israel. Ezra saw what was coming down the road. He knew what his job was going to be. He understood his mission, and he prepared to do that. We've got people today preparing to serve by taking additional classes, by studying the booklets and materials that we have. They're looking to the future. You know, I was taking a tour of Bricketwood campus whenever I was living in England a number of years ago. And you saw the um, Ambassador Hall over there. It was a big uh, old uh, mansion. Beautiful grounds, but they were all grown up. 
And the guy that gave me the tour, he said, you know, it's a shame. It's a shame that all this is going to waste. We should get it back. I said, you know, if we got it back, we don't have the resources financially to handle it. We don't have the staff to staff it. I said, I think we're in a different era today. We're in a different era. I mean, you look back at the Waldensians. They didn't have room for a campus on top of one of these hills. They, were, they had fled up there. They were being persecuted. All they could do was train ministers to go out uh, kind of undercover. They didn't have a lot of social life. They had a job to do. God hasn't given us a big campus today, but he has given us a very qualified group of people to teach. We got a half a dozen people with PhDs. We got another half a dozen with master's degrees. No other group has this. We wouldn't be doing what we're doing today if Dr. Germano hadn't walked through our doors about five years ago and brought the skills to do that. We've talked about it before. But we need to go where God has opened the door and use what God has given us to use. I've got one more point I want to make. One more tool to talk about. Now hold on to your seats. Because the final tool that God has given us to use is you. Is you. In John 15, verse 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me. I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Paul mentioned 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27 and 28, 29, 30. He said, For you see your calling, brethren. Not many wise, not many mighty are called. But God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the wise. God has a sense of humor. God has a purpose. God used the apostles. I want to share something with you. I might want to run over just a minute or two here. But I came across a quote in a book called The Demonstratio Evangelica, The Proof of the Gospel, written by Eusebius. He was a bishop of Caesarea around 300 A.D., the biographer of Constantine. He was an apologist for early Christianity. But he writes, he's writing about the men that Jesus chose. And he says, how could his, Jesus' disciples, if he was really a deceiver and a wizard, recognized by them as such, with their own minds, enthralled uh, by still worse viciousness, undergo at the hands of their fellow countrymen every insult and every form of punishment, on account of the witnesses that they delivered about him. He said, why did people do that? Why would they die if they knew Jesus was an imposter? And once more, consider this. Granted that they were deceitful cozeners, in other words, given if they were deceits, you must add that they were uneducated, quite common men, barbarians to boot, with no knowledge of any tongue but Syrian. And how then did they go into all the world? How did Jesus do it? (laughs) He gave them tools to use. Where was the intellect to sketch out so daring a scheme? If Jesus was just a, 
you know, kind of a fly-by-night person, where did he come up with this idea of reaching the whole world? He says, For I admit if they confined their energies to their own country, men of no education might deceive and be deceived and not allow the matter to rest. But to preach to all the name of Jesus, to teach about his marvelous deeds in country and town, that some of them should take possession of the Roman Empire and the queen of cities, Rome itself, and others, the Persian and the Armenian and the Parthian race. He says, all this for my part will not admit to be the work of mere men, far less of poor, ignorant men, certainly not of deceivers and wizards. He said, something was going on here. God used, Jesus Christ used these simple men. I don't think they were quite that simple. They're probably pretty sharp businessmen. (laughs) They were fishermen. They learned how to survive. But God used these people. They weren't, you might say, the cream of the crop. But he used them to literally turn the world upside down. Acts 17, verse 6. Brethren, God has called you and I to become part of his work. As Mr. Ames mentioned, an incredible mission that we've been given. The Dr. Meredith outlined those seven points. I would encourage you as we conclude, don't take for granted the points that we've been given in our mission statement. These are powerful principles. They set this work apart from any other work on the face of this earth. Brethren, let's value these tools. Let's use these tools individually and as a church so that God can use us to be powerful instruments in his hands to prepare the way for the return of Jesus Christ.